0: All right, let's study God's Word. Let's take our Bibles and turn to a very important and foundational passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 22. We're starting off this fall with a new study series, and I'm calling it Building Stronger Relationships. Uh, And as we do this, we're going to talk about how we can strengthen, how we can uh, make uh, uh, more unified, more powerful, more giving, more loving, more forgiving relationships As we do that, I want to set some goals for us uh, as we look at God's Word. Goal number one is that we would be encouraged. And primarily that we would be encouraged to examine what we can do to heal and significantly strengthen any relationship in our life right now that's struggling. Any relationship that's not doing well. uh, Any friendship or family relationship or church relationship or work relationship. Whatever the case may be that we would look for ways to heal that. The second goal is that we would be challenged by the Holy Spirit so that we can do that, we would be challenged by the Holy Spirit to be honest with ourselves. And the goal over the next nine or ten weeks is to not blame others, but to look inward. To not say, well, it's somebody else's fault. It's, it's their problem. Uh, they, they are the ones that have offended me. They're the ones that have created the breach. They're the reason. No, I don't want to, uh, let's not do that anymore. Let's look now at what we can do, what I can do to change any relationship that is damaged or that is not working. A lot of times when I counsel couples and they're going at each other and they're blaming each other, I'll say, stop, time out. You can't say anything for 10 minutes to blame or accuse the other person of anything. And the first word's out of their mouth or another word of blame, I say, you didn't listen. I do not want to hear anything about them. I only want to hear what you can do. And they kind of look at me with a puzzled, sometimes angry face like, what do you think you're doing? That's the way we solve it. What does it start with? It starts with me. Goal number three, to be positive and helpful in establishing some very practical and realistic and everyday steps that we can take not only to make relationships stronger, but to make our relationships an example to each other and an example to the world of how a believer lives. And how a believer relates to the Lord, relates to their spouse, relates to the children, relates to their families, relates in work, in their culture, and especially here at church. Much of the spiritual opposition that we have faced over the last three or four months has been based on relationships. And we've seen attacks on marriages and on friendships and on the body. And the enemy's tried to create disunity, and he's tried to cause us to be impatient and intolerant of each other and, and to not trust each other and to not have latitude with each other, to be very stingy relationally. That's been his attack. And while the Lord has helped us through that, and he has, right? He's helped us through that time. There, there are still little pockets of damage. There's still little things that are, that, are, that are here and there that we want to repair and we want to fortify them because the Lord's about to do something in our midst. The Lord is about to do something in our midst. He's preparing us. I'm not saying that as a guess. I'm saying that's a truth. The Lord's about to do something. Now, that's why I've chosen this graphic, and I asked Randy to use this picture that I found on the Internet. I never, he always does the slides. He does a great job, but I said, I want this picture for the slides. This is a picture of World Trade Center One. It's also called the Freedom Tower, and it's in New York, and it's being built on the site of where the trade towers, the World Trade Centers, uh, were lost on 9-11. And you can see in the picture that the building uh, is still under construction, but we can see its framework. And there's a lot of hope and a lot of potential about what that's going to be when it's done. And really, this building, I've become convinced in the last 48 hours, this building is a metaphor for most of our relationships. It's an impressive structure that has tremendous potential, but it's still got some gaps. It's still unfinished. It still has some scaffolding and some framework around it. But instead of looking that and, and getting discouraged and kind of saying, well, it doesn't seem like it's ever going to be done because this building took about eight years to get off the ground. They talked about it almost immediately after 9-11, but then there were all kinds of contractors and unions and debates and city hall problems and all kinds of mess. It almost didn't get built. But for eight years, they quibbled about it. Now it's finally being built. And instead of seeing that, like our relationships, as kind of unfinished and and discouraging, every day we need to look at that and see that if we build correctly, we will move closer to a new, more solid edifice that signals freedom from the problems of the past. So I really want this building to become kind of the image of this series. And this morning we're going to talk about the one building material that is absolutely necessary for the base of any relationship. There is one thing, and only one thing, that stands as the foundation, and it's given to us by Christ, who is called our foundation and our cornerstone, and He perfectly showed us how to do this. 1 Corinthians 3 says, No man can lay a foundation other than the one that's laid, which is Christ Jesus. And that applies to our relationships. Christ is going to have to be at the center, because He's the one who restored us unto Himself, By his own sacrifice. And he proved how much he loved us on the cross. And now he tells us, here's the most important thing in your relationships. The most important thing in your relationships is love. The measure and effectiveness and success of building stronger relationships is the extent of our sacrificial love. It all rests on that. We're wasting our time over the next nine or ten weeks if we don't start without foundation because we'll just be grasping at the wind, trying to make things better in our relationships without the real cause of what heals. So let's see what he says here in Matthew chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now I want you to notice the detail that the Holy Spirit gives us through Luke. He says that this person who asked the question, was a lawyer. And he represented the Pharisees. Now, the fact that he includes that detail, and a man came to him and asked him a question, a lawyer, don't glide over that. That's an important detail. That tells us the atmosphere of the room. That tells us what's going on. It kind of gives us a picture uh, of the type of person this might have been, and I have to believe that this wasn't one of the good attorneys that really helps you. This is one of the annoying know-it-all lawyers who's constantly going for the angle and trying to trap the defendant. You know those type? You've seen them on Perry Mason, or if you're younger, you've seen them on some other law show that I don't watch. So he goes to Jesus. I got a question for you. Kind of like, Jesus is being cross-examined. He's just minding his own business. And the guy kind of comes up with a little bit of attitude and his chin up high, and and he's thinking that he's a hot shot because he's a lawyer and he's a Pharisee. That's a really, really bad combination. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, All right, let me ask you something. What's the great commandment? Now, the reason the Pharisees are involved here is they're miffed. Jesus had exposed the hypocrisy of the Sadducees and had already exposed the hypocrisy of the the Pharisees. They were enemies, but at this point, the Pharisees are coming to the Sadducees' defense because Jesus has just made their their philosophies and their man-made beliefs, he has made them look really ridiculous. So now they're kind of conniving again, and they're making it abundantly clear at this point that they have no desire to know the truth. They're just going to accuse people that get in their way. And Jesus was the most prominent person that got in their way. It's all about them at this point. So they're willing to twist the facts and they're willing to lie and accuse because they don't want to submit to the Lord. You know, it's easy to know when you or someone else is not walking with the Lord because the desire to manipulate and kind of Manage the truth becomes more important than submitting to it. We start to make up all kinds of defenses and arguments and justifications of why we don't want to follow the truth. The Pharisees were the kings of this. They never had a reasonable, intelligent conversation. They never really sat down with Jesus and said, You know, you're different, and it seems like there's something about you. We don't really trust you. We'll tell you that up front, but we're willing to listen, we're willing to hear what you have to say, and see how it aligns with what we've been told from Scripture. They never did that. From day one, when Jesus shows up, they're against him, they're accusing him, they're lying about him, and they're trying to undermine him. They just keep bobbing and weaving and hitting and running, hoping to inflict damage on his reputation while elevating themselves. It's kind of like the political campaign. Hitting, punching, not really telling the truth, hoping that somehow people lose confidence so that somebody else can be elevated. That's what the Pharisees did. They were the first politicians. They were the first ones who really were about themselves. And this can be very indicative of of our unhealthy relationships, where one person or both parties isn't really looking for reconciliation. They're not really looking for normalcy. They've kind of seen the half-constructed building, and they've said, I give up. To construct this, to, to make this finished, would be too hard and I'm too impatient and I don't really want to trust the Lord to heal this. So when that happens, when we look at a relationship and we kind of say, it's, it's past help, I give up. What happens, and we sometimes don't even realize that it's happening, is that we start to sabotage it by working in a counterproductive way. I see this all the time with couples. Where it's not going well. And instead of saying, what do I need to do to sacrifice myself and love that person like crazy, so they'll have confidence and be secure in in this relationship. Instead of doing that, they go to the other extreme, and they say, well, I'm going to damage it. That's what the Pharisees are doing. And Jesus sees this situation, look at it, in terms of the lostness of their spiritual condition, but he doesn't get distracted by it. He turns around and uses it as a teaching opportunity. And his words are very simple. He says, there is no greater commandment. There's nothing that supersedes this. There's no greater action we can take towards somebody. There's nothing that will be more powerful or more convincing that you really, really are surrendered to the Lord than to love Him with every aspect of your being. There's nothing that will tell God that you're really serious about your faith, even though He knows all things, But there's nothing that will prove that more, that we're sincere, than by loving him with everything, our emotions and our intellect and our convictions. And then he says, the second greatest thing, after loving the Lord with all you have, is to love everyone else the way you love yourself. He says, everything rests on this. This is the foundation. You want to build a building of relationships with the Lord or with other people? This is the foundation. There's nothing else. There's no law. There's no word from the prophets. Nothing matters if you don't love the Lord and love others. Now, we've talked about this in the membership class. And we've said, you know, our our theological convictions and our core values and our philosophy of ministry really doesn't matter one bit if we don't love the Lord and love each other. We can have the strongest theology in the world. We can stand and beat our chest and say, this is what we stand for. Look at us. We have high values. But none of that will make any difference to anybody if we don't love. Because we'll just be going through the motions. We'll just be saying things and acting apart without sincerity. And at the end of the day, without love, we really just don't care about other people. So I want you to notice a couple interesting characteristics about what Jesus says here. Look back at the text in verse uh, 37. Let me give you four thoughts about this, what Jesus is saying. First of all, this is not exclusive to the Old Testament or New Testament. It's a commandment to every believer at all times. Eleven times in the Old Testament, God tells the people, you need to love me more than anything. Eleven times he says... In the middle of all the law, in the middle of all the regulations that I've given you to tell you how you really should live, what would be ideal, how how your life should look like if you were going to be like me. In the midst of all that regulations, in Deuteronomy, eight times God says, I want you to love me more than anything. See, the problem with legalism is it doesn't have love. And the problem with just having love and mercy and grace is it needs structure. So in the middle of all this stuff that God's saying, here's what you need to do, here's the law, here's the specificity of how I want you to live. In the middle of all that, God says, but I'm not making this just about legalism. I want you to recognize that what drives this is your love for me. Jesus says that loving God, look at the text, is the fulfillment of the law. It's what shows that we've put our complete trust in Him. If we've willingly accepted his commands for our lives. Second characteristic is that this word love is not describing some kind of uh, fluctuating atmosphere of our heart and mind. It's It's not, oh, I love because of certain circumstances or I love because of certain aspects or certain emotions. The word has a spiritual depth to it. This is not, oh, I love you. I right a Valentine's card by that's it. Not, that's not this. This is the greatest depth of love that's based in the convictions. And the word literally means to love deeply and be contented in that love. In other words, there's an endurance to it, there's, a, there's an unwavering commitment to it. So when he says, love the Lord your God, it's not just based on what God's doing for us. We just sang the song. He keeps on making a way for me. And we can love kind of conditionally. Well, as long as you help me and bless me, Lord, I'll keep loving you. But when times get tough, I'm going to turn my back. No, that's not this kind of love. This kind of love endures through everything. And then I want you to notice third, verse 37, that there's a possessive pronoun. He says, love the Lord your God. That word is very important because it shows that the relationship has been formed and that we've accepted that relationship. And he uses two words for God. Love the Lord, your God. In other words, it's not just love God, because that's too kind of ethereal and unspecified. He says, love the Lord, your God. That word Lord means owner and master, the one who's in control of your lives. So if we're going to love deeply and with commitment, and unwavering with the fullest depth of love for God, we love Him as our Lord and Master who owns us, and that means that we need to treat Him with the highest possible respect. Now that's very interesting because we don't usually love those we're subservient to. We usually resent them. But because of who the Lord is and and what He has done, it's not only possible to love Him, it is a delight, And a privilege to love Him. Somebody say amen. It's not, oh, I've got to love God. I don't wake up in the morning and go, I have to love my wife today. Mm -mm -mm, How am I going to do that? My kids. Okay, I'll love you guys today. Not tomorrow. It's not a question, right? Well, loving God goes billion trillion million quadrillion million, trillion, million, quadrillion times past that. We love him because he first loved us. We love him because of who he is. We love him because of what he's done. We love him because we don't deserve any of it. We love him because we should love him. It's a privilege to be able to love him. It's a delight to be able to love him. Isn't it an amazing statement this morning that he is our God? We deserve nothing but hell. And he says, I will secure you. I will redeem you through Christ. I will call you my child, and I will give you heaven forever. You'll be like me. To love him is the least we can do. And then fourth, look at verse 39. He says, the second greatest commitment is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And those last two words are very insightful. He doesn't say, love the Lord your God as you love yourself, because that's impossible. How would we ever even compare our love for ourselves to the love that we would have for the Lord? We could never imagine to exalt ourselves so highly. And yet, when we sin, that's exactly what we do. Instead, he says, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then in terms of other people, in terms of this body, in terms of your neighbor, in terms of the person at work, in terms of the person that cuts you off uh, on, on the street, in terms of the person that curses and spits at you, you're supposed to love them like you love yourself. The relationship's supposed to be equal. And I want you to notice, he doesn't say, oh, Christian, just love believers as you love yourself. That's easy, right? He doesn't specify, and he doesn't specify on purpose, It's it's intentionally vague to indicate that that love should be toward everybody. In other words, our selflessness is to run the gamut, not just to those that we love and that are easy to love, but to those who are nasty and hurtful and, and hate the Lord. We're supposed to love them with the same mercy that God had in loving us while we were yet sinners. That's hard to do. Of course, this was unthinkable to the Pharisees. They were so proud and they looked down on people that they saw as inferior to them. But Jesus challenged that and he did it to teach us. Uh, Listen, most of the conflict that you and I will have, most of the division in our interpersonal relationships comes from, And this is going to be hard to hear, it was hard to write down. Most of the conflict and most of the division in our relationships comes from an internal mindset that the other person, is inferior to us. Whether it's socially or intellectually or emotionally or socially or spiritually or any other lead that we can come up with, we tend to distribute our love with restraint. And we do it as an act of kind of subtle manipulation that you're going to have to earn my love and you're going to have to earn my respect and it's going to take you doing some things my way, and to make sure that I feel loved first, and that you kind of toe the line uh, without making mistakes that I can exploit, because when you do that, and I feel confident that you really love me, then I'll love you. And that has nothing to do with what this text says. And Before we protest and say, I don't really do that, think about all the times in your marriage that you've done that. But all the times it's been that way with your kids or your parents or your friends. we start to think about the ways that we do that. they're very subtle. It's more often than we'd imagine. We kind of want to put people in their place, which simply means we want to gain some kind of advantage over them by highlighting their inadequacies. And when we really go down the path, we enhance that with sarcasm and condescension. And we say, well, you don't really get it. You're not up to my standard. Usually we do that because we're insecure in ourselves. So if I can make somebody else feel worse, then I'll feel better about myself. But but the Bible says that that's far from how we're to treat people. We are to love each other with sacrifice and selflessness and joy. Which means that we're actually supposed to put people in their place in a different way. Rather than looking for advantage, rather than creating a situation where we feel better about ourselves, the Bible tells us that the way to put people in their place is to elevate them above ourselves instead of pushing them down and being condescending and trying to get them over here so they feel lesser and they're looking up at us the bible says i want you to do just the opposite instead of pushing them down i want you to elevate above themself above yourself not just ahead of you because when somebody's just ahead of you it's kind of easy to reel them in and kind of keep them a distance and pass them once in a while he says i don't want that i want you to think up and i thought about this as i was studying this text and i thought about jesus And the disciples, as he's about to celebrate the Last Supper, as he's about to say, I'm going to give my body and my blood for you, so you'll be redeemed. As they walk into the room, Jesus takes a bowl and he takes a towel and he kneels down before the disciples. Can you imagine such a thing that the God of the universe would kneel before these men who are busy debating which one of us is the greatest? And Jesus is modeling what relationships should be like and the attitude that we should have as we love Him, then it filters down into our relationships. And essentially what we are doing, and I want you to really listen closely here. Don't misunderstand me here. What we are supposed to basically do before each other is do this. We're supposed to kneel down and put somebody else above us. Now you say, well, you don't know the friends I have. You don't know my spouse. You don't know my kids. They're so ungrateful. You don't know what it's like at work. Listen, there aren't conditions here. He doesn't say, love your neighbor as yourself, if. He just says, love your neighbor as yourself. Take the posture of a servant. Sacrifice, yield to them, submit to them, and serve them. Because that's what love does. How much would that change our relationships if we did that first and foremost? Listen, we've all seen plenty of evidence of people, and maybe it's you, that have been damaged by a lack of love and security and sacrifice in our lives. Maybe you're dealing with that right where you sit this morning. You're dealing with the after effects of someone that mistreated you and was selfish to you and was unloving and harsh. Maybe they withheld love. Maybe they even showed hatred to you and it was so painful and traumatic that it actually, even right now, at this moment, is causing a negative effect on you. Every single person in this room has been hurt and we've all been hurt significantly. Multiple, multiple times. And Not to be trite, but let me say this. No one has ever been hurt more than Jesus Christ. No one has ever been hurt more than Jesus Christ despised and rejected by the very people that he created and came to save, beaten physically by men that he could have gone whipped and terrorized and spit on and mocked by the enemy who thought he was winning, doubted and denied by billions of people every single day, ignored, forgotten, and deprioritized By people who claim him as Savior. Listen, if anybody knows pain and mistreatment and hatred this morning, it's Jesus Christ. And we're the ones that did it to him. And the Bible says he still loved us. He still gave himself for us. He still sacrificed for us while we were yet in that relationship. And listen, whatever your case this morning, whatever your hurt is this morning, the only way to overcome the damage and the disappointment of your past, the only way to break out of the control of selfishness and insecurity is by loving instead of hiding. It's by loving Instead of hesitating. Now you say, well Paul, that doesn't feel very safe. And if I do that, I'm very vulnerable and I might be hurt again. And and I I feel kind of exposed. But here is what loving the Lord and loving others does. It actually moves us beyond ourselves and beyond those thoughts. And it makes us more like Christ. Because we know that when we love the Lord, we will never, ever, ever be disappointed. He will never let you down. Listen, humans will let you down all the time. I'll let you down. Your spouse will let you down. Your kids will let you down. Friends will let you down. This church will let you down. But the Lord will never, ever let you down. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Listen, when we get that right first, it becomes so much easier to love others. Because we see with the mind of Christ. But it's not easy. Nobody said it was going to be easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus. It wasn't easy for him to hang on the cross, but he did. He proved his love. And now what he calls us to is far easier because of what he's done. He put us a place that we could not ever deserve. And now he says to us as believers, let love dominate your relationships. Let it control everything. In your relationship with me, you love me more than anything else. And as you do that in your relationship with others, let love dominate. Come on, get rid of self. Deny yourself. Decrease yourself. It's not about you. It's about other people. Love. Now, what does that look like and why is it important? Let's take just a couple minutes to answer both and then we'll pray. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 13. Oh, we all know this passage. But it's so important. Because if our relationships are going to become edified and strengthened and completed, because right now they look like that building, they've got a gap, they're scaffolding, they're holes. If our relationships are going to be strengthened and edified and completed, and if we're going to get free from the pain of the past and, and, and the problems of the past and stand as an example, then the words of these five verses have to characterize us. This is not debatable. This is what has to be true of us. And we've read it before, and I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, help us now. I pray that we'll see it new. Because I've been seeing these words on, I remember in college, people had posters, you know, all the girls, love is patient and kind, and I'm going to find my prince someday, and he's going to be wonderful, whenever we'll I have problems. Okay, that's good. You're a sophomore in college. You have all kinds of perspective. Let's see this like it's new this morning, all right? Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and it is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Wow, is that one hard. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. Now there are 16 words here, or 16 phrases, that describe the love that should typify our lives. And it really breaks into four main qualities. Sixteen words that break into four qualities. The first three are in verses four to five. Love is patient, kind, and not jealous. All of those, this is basic now, stay with me. All of those are sacrificial actions. And that means that true love gives of itself, especially in terms of showing value, excuse me, showing value, respect, and trust For the other person. So why do we hesitate to do that in our relationships? Why do we hesitate to be patient, kind, and not jealous? And to be sacrificial and to value and respect and show trust for the other person? The reason we hesitate to do that is because we've all been burned. And we're very cautious to put ourselves back in that position. But by hesitating... We hold back and we miss the opportunity to honor the person in the way that they deserve. Listen, we need to make a decision. It's what? September 9th, 2012. We may need to make a decision right now. We can keep records in our head and we can hold people emotionally hostage because we don't ever want to get hurt again. But the end result, if we do that, will be that they are always going to feel slighted and we are never going to feel satisfied. If you hold on to the past, and you hold on to, well, so-and-so hurt me, and -and so-and-so said something. I know know in-laws that have held something that somebody said like 20 years before in kind of a side comment, and the relationship is still broken. Holidays are still uncomfortable because they won't let go of it. Does that bring them any joy whatsoever? If we hold on to the past, and we hold on to the record, The person will never feel released, and we will always feel annoyed. It's so much better to open ourselves up to the risk of being hurt and to trust the Lord that he will honor us when we show love for other people. So make the decision right now. Are you going to keep holding on to that thing? I'm speaking to myself this morning. You're going to keep keep letting it grind your gears, so to speak? You know what grind your gears means, right? Everybody drove a, a manual transmission. That's what we do. We hold on to the past. We just keep grinding the gears and we're pushing on the clutch and nobody's going anywhere. Let go of it. Second, verses four to five, we have the next six. Love doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. All of these, again, very basic. These are selfless actions. It means that love is willing to put the other person first. There's more to the sentence. Love is willing to put the other person first, even at the expense of self. It's easy to put somebody else first if it doesn't cost you, right? If you're at the DMV and there are two people in line letting the guy behind you go, no big deal. You're in the grocery store, you've got 12 items, the guy's got one. And you go, I'm not in a hurry. Go ahead. It doesn't cost me anything. But if you're at the head of the line of the grocery store and there are 80 people behind you, it costs you something, right? Love, and I'm not saying to do this, by the way. I'm saying love says you go first. And it's going to cost me. I'm cool with that. If you... And I take arrogance out of any relationship. I know that's hard for us to fathom. But if we take arrogance out of any relationship, how much is it going to change it? I know that almost every conflict I've ever had with somebody, whether it's my wife or my kids or in churches or with friends or with enemies or in jobs or whatever, almost every conflict and probably every conflict I've ever had with somebody, has been caused by pride or arrogance on at least one person's part. And often it's been my own. When pride kicks in, when arrogance kicks into the relationship, it damages. Now imagine what it would be like if there was an absence of self-interest and an absence of self-defensiveness on everybody's part. If that was true, there would be no conflict. Love doesn't make a show of itself. It doesn't get angry easily. It doesn't keep track of what was said and done earlier. It forgives and forgets easily. How often is that the default in our relationships? Because when it's not there, it's like weak girders in the framework. Eventually, it's going to cause a problem. Eventually, that weak girder is going to start to bend and start to just kind of fold in a little bit. And that's what happens in our relationships. If we don't use sacrificial love first, eventually it starts to bear under the weight of all the problems. And the building can't be strong because the love is not there as the foundation. So we've got sacrifice and we've got selflessness. Third, we have two qualities in verse 6. These are sanctified actions. They're the mark of holiness. Love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. Not only does it not allow sin and worldliness to be present, because they'll always push us back to self and diminish love, but it also makes an intentional decision. This is about to be very difficult. You ready? It makes an intentional decision not to find pleasure when the other person fails. You ever been in a situation... Where somebody who's hurt you, you see them make a really bad decision and they suffer for it. And and come on, let's be honest this morning. You have a little bit of glee in your heart, right? A little bit of, (laughs) couldn't happen to a nicer person. You hurt me so bad. I'm so, I'm sorry. I know this is not sanctified, but boy, that does my heart good. Anybody ever said that? You don't have to raise your hands. I know you have. I'll testify. I've said it a few times. Oh, you've got yours. (laughs) Good. Good. I don't even feel bad. Good. Oh, you deserve it. Whatever. Hope it happens more. Hope it rains on your picnic. I'm speaking metaphorically here. Hope ants show up. Hope the Lord gives you enough struggle to humble you finally. And then we say other words that are not very nice and condescending. The Lord says that the mark of love is not enjoying it, even when your worst enemy stumbles. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. And that shows just how selfless and sanctified love has to be. And that's hard to do with some people, right? And then on the flip side, in verse 6, we're called to rejoice in truth. We're, We're to find the most fulfillment when truth is being honored and the name of Christ is being glorified and the name of Christ is being advanced and proclaimed by people who love Him. So love has to be sacrificial, it has to be selfless, it has to be sanctified. The last five qualities are in verses 7 to 8, and they are all actions that are steadfast. Love is not easily swayed by disappointment. It doesn't falter when there's hurt. It's not conditional because there's been betrayal. It, It doesn't say, well, you rejected me, so I reject you. And this one is very, very hard. The only pure example we have of this kind of love is Jesus Christ himself who experienced every kind of rejection and betrayal and still loves all people. It's a chorus I used to love and I wish we... We're going to have to find the music for it. I want to, I want to get it again. And it says... Well, I'll just tell you the words. I won't sing it. It says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. Great is thy faithfulness. Aren't you glad for that truth this morning? That God's love is steadfast? I love that word. It means fixed, established, and sure. The five qualities of love at the end of this section say that your love and my love for the Lord and for each other and for everybody else should be fixed, established, and sure. So we're to bear all things and believe all things and hope all things and endure our things. Our love is never to fail no matter what the circumstances because that's how God loves us and that's how we're to love Him and each other. And here's what's powerful about that. Here's why this is so important and life-changing And relationship changing. It's because it transforms completely the way that we think. Let me give you this and we'll pray. We all tend to think very selfishly. That's not a criticism. That's human nature. We all tend to think selfishly. And we wonder what's in it for us. Never more so than when we're called to give of ourselves and to sacrifice. And even though we don't want to encourage that, we know that the enemy loves to stoke that as a temptation. So when he stokes us to feel a little annoyed and a little selfish, and I got a sacrifice and you haven't, and why is that so, and that's unfair, and all those thoughts that he tries to push on our mind, we need to have a defense and a reason not to live that way. And the reason is that love and putting the other person in their place above us radically changes our perspective. When we put people here, when we push them down, when we condescend, when we criticize, when we make them feel less than, they will never feel joy. They will always feel indebtedness. They'll always feel less than, and we will not feel good about it because now our perspective gets more and more skewed by self. But when we put people above ourselves, first and foremost, the Lord, second, everybody else. When we put people above ourselves, it completely changes our perspective. It changes how we worship. Because now worship isn't about us. It's not about the lights and the sound and how we feel and whether somebody's singing nicely or not. It's not about what people think. It's not about what we like. It is simply about glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. When we come to worship in this place, singing, praying, giving, studying, when we come to worship, we come to glorify God alone. There's nothing else. We're not here to be bothered. Because we are sometimes, right? That's too loud. It's too soft. It's not bright enough. It's too hot. It's too cold. By the way, it's too hot. Well, I, can't, I, don't like, I don't like the screens. I don't like the chandeliers. And, and the room's not big enough. My chair's uncomfortable. I'm sitting in the wrong place. And the person next to me doesn't sing. I mean, think about all the things that annoy us. And the devil keeps saying, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, think about that. When we walk in the door, we're here to glorify God. We're just here to glorify Him. His name be praised. Oh, Lord, you keep on making a way for me. Not about me. It's about you. Look at what you've done. I'm just going to keep trusting you. That's just, it's very simple. And, Lord, I'm going to praise you. My voice is horrible. I'm going to praise you anyway. I don't care. You say make a joyful noise. I'm going to make a joyful noise. I'm just going to praise you. And, Lord, I don't know how to pray. I'm uncomfortable. I, I don't want to pray out loud. People are looking. I don't care. I'm going to pray. I'm going to call on your name. I don't care what people think. I'm going to raise my hands. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to exalt your name. I'm going to tell other people about you. They think I'm a kook, so be it. I'm here to worship you. changes how we study. Because now it's about gratitude for His truth and showing love to conform to the image of His Son, to know Him and to copy how He lived. It changes how we serve. The greatest characteristic of love is sacrificial service. So rather than being bothered or doing it for attention or praise, we serve because that's what we're called to do. That's how we love. It changes how we use our spiritual gifts because now we want to make sure it's not about us. It's not for our edification. It's for the edification of the body. It's to draw people to Christ. It changes the way we do outreach and evangelism because now, by love, we really care about the souls of people. I hope you care about the souls of the people that you're driving by that don't know Jesus Christ. I hope we care as a church about the souls of this city. Jesus got out of the boat and he saw the crowds and it says he was moved with compassion because they were sheep without a shepherd. Listen, there are a lot of sheep without a shepherd in this city and they need Jesus Christ and we're going to reach them. And we're going to do it without racism or sexism or bigotry or or any kind of exclusivity or by going after a certain demographic. We're not going to do that. We're going to be comfortable with everybody and we're going to pursue everybody for Christ changes our relationships. We'll talk about this more in the weeks to come. Our spouses and our kids. That we're here to serve them. What a radical departure that may be. And it changes our faith. Because now that we love Him, there is no hesitation to be confident in our trust. To resist the desire to maintain control. To find joy in His constant faithfulness and goodness to us. Oh Lord, Your mercies are new every morning. Great is Your faithfulness, oh God. There is nothing like it. There is nothing like it. So it's real simple. Love the Lord with everything. Love each other as yourself. Without that foundation building will never be finished but with it our relationships will stand as a powerful example of strength and honor to the lord and our culture right now needs that it needs to see that let's bow our heads father we thank you this morning for your amazing amazing faithfulness We thank you for the powerful and undeniable example of Jesus Christ, who showed your love for us even as we stood as your enemies, even knowing that trillions of people would reject him. You still gave. And Lord, now the challenge is before us as we start. Studying how to build stronger relationships. The challenges before us to lay this foundation of love with each other. Lord, where there are relationships this morning in this room that are broken. I pray even today those would be healed. That somebody would take the step forward to resolve that. We pray where marriages are struggling and broken and divided. Lord, that we would hear this word and you would heal That there would be sacrifice and love and forgiveness and putting off the pain of the past and the problems of the past. Lord, do that work today. Push away the enemy who wants to lie and say we shouldn't do that. Lord, heal our relationship with our kids. Heal our relationship with our friends that are broken, where there's disrespect and dishonor. Lord, you want to do this work. And I pray you would help us as we move forward and you would help us as we continue to study in the weeks ahead to be humble and open to what your word has to say. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's so powerful and it's so clear. We thank you for how it teaches us and corrects us because, Lord, we all need correction. So correct us today. Help us to know the joy of your salvation and the joy of your sufficiency. So, Lord, we ask you to do this work in our midst. We pray we would not listen to the lies of our enemy, but that we would trust confidently in you. We thank you and praise you for what you have done and what you will do. Lord, start the work, we pray, right now. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.